I am happy to announce that the winner is All About Eve. Parasite. Kramer versus Kramer. Chicago! West Side Show. The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. One flew over the cuckoo's Shakespeare in Love. May I have the envelope, please? It is Tuesday. March 31st, 1981, we are at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion in beautiful downtown Los Angeles. We got Johnny Carson here presiding over the ceremony for the 53rd Academy Awards, honoring the best films of 1980, and it's now time for the big award of the night. The envelope, please. And the winner is... This is the time I'm right. Ordinary people. Welcome back to another episode of The Envelope, please, everybody. The podcast where we watch and discuss every Best Picture Oscar winner in chronological order. We're your hosts. I'm Sam. I'm Rance. Welcome back. Okay, Rance, so you started us off by saying we're here on a Tuesday this week. Tell me why we're here on a Tuesday. Why a Tuesday? (laughs) Well, um... It was on March 30th, earlier in the day, um, that the assassination attempt of Ronald Reagan took place. And the Academy, at the time, they did not know what the outcome of that assassination attempt was going to be. And so they did not feel that it was appropriate to go on with um, the ceremony. Interestingly, they had, uh, Reagan had already pre-recorded a welcome introduction to the Academy and television audience. And so they were able to play that and it took on a certain level of poignance because of that. Oh, man. And even further interesting is the man who attempted to assassinate Ronald Reagan, um, which was uh, a guy named John Hink- Hinckley Jr. Um, this was in D.C., uh, did it because he was trying to impress known liberal uh, Jodie Foster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Good lord. So there's the uh, there's the how that went down. So all that of is it a, is very yeah. That's a great the, example of where politics and movie making really come together, right? I and mean, we, we discuss that a lot on this podcast. And this that's is the just, first. Yeah, this is the. <laughs> This is the first podcast where the Hollywood actor is president. Yeah. Which is... Uh, oh, you're so right. Yeah, because this, yeah. this, you're right. This is 1980. Yeah, you're totally right. This is his first time. Wow, that is insane. <laughs> Isn't it? Yeah. Um, because uh, last year was took place when the election was going on. And this right. year is the... Mm-hmm. We still had That's Carter true. last time around. But now we are in the... The Reagan years, which are going to bring on a whole different kind of movie than what we dealt with in the 70s. That is true. Yes, we are in a whole new decade now, too. That's so exciting. I'm excited to talk about these 80s films because I know that you and I have seen so many more of these movies now. So we can really start giving a rounder, I think, conversation on a lot of these um, these races where we kind of break down this podcast. Yeah. What else happened in this ceremony? Well, a... Uh... A legendary Hollywood actor uh, got an honorary award this year. Oh. Um, and that was a man by the name of Henry Fonda. Henry! Henry Fonda! Coming, mother! Who at this point had been nominated several times for Best Actor, but had never won right. Best Actor. And this is going to be the first of two times that um, somebody gets their honorary award only to win a competitive one later. Uh, the following so crazy year, to me. Actually. That's just so um, wild to me. <laughs> it is, it is. And so it's, um, we'll get further into Henry Fonda and what I think is his very delightful performance in the movie he wins for. Yes. Um, <laughs> totally. Next year. Um, but it is, I'm glad that they... They had the i. They didn't know that movie was to come, and um, I mean, it might have been in production, but it wasn't released until the end of 1981. 
Uh, so they didn't know about that. And so I'm glad they had the foresight to um, be like, we need to make sure this guy who gave us, you know, Grapes of Wrath and 12 Angry Men and so much else. Um, gave us Jane Fonda. <laughs> and gave us Jane. And Peter. And, and Peter, you're right. Peter, you're right. let's yes. not. <laughs> um, anyway, so yeah, he got his he got his honorary Oscar. Um and uh, so those are the those are the really big things I think that happen uh, this year. This is also um, the second time we get an, uh, a Star Wars movie up for Oscars. Oh yes, probably um, the best of all the this... Star Wars movies, I would say. And I think most of us think it's the best of all the Star Wars movies. But interestingly, not nominated um, for Best Picture. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, why don't we use that to go right into our snubs? Well, do okay. Do you think um, uh, Empire Strikes Back not getting a Best Picture nomination is a snub? Would you put it in this Best Picture race? This is a pretty competitive race. It is, yeah, with some really good movies. Um, uh, and I haven't seen Tess, so I don't want to. Yeah, that's my but... one that I haven't seen. Yeah. But I don't really want to disparage... I, I don't really... I don't like propping up Roman Polanski after. <laughs> yeah. After what happened. Um, yeah, and we're well after. Him. We are several years after <laughs> yeah. um, yes. him uh, raping a 13-year-old. So um, I, I think that because of that, I would say maybe that's the slot it goes into. Yeah, I can agree with you that. Know? I wouldn't mind and I think shifting that out. Yeah, it takes it takes the you kind of what it the space opera isn't that what they call it? Um, yes, and, yeah, true. Um, and kind of raises the stakes and puts it, I think, on a much higher intellectual level. Yeah. Than first exists in the first movie. Although, don't worry, Return of the Jedi will, will take away some of that intellectualism but um it's <laughs> An still early <laughs> review <laughs> but i think empire strikes back is by far the most serious and the most oh definitely um, it's like the perfect the movie beautiful. sequel right it takes what the first movie did expanded upon the characters invited some new characters in that really drive the plot forward and then gives you a great cliffhanger and setup for the final movie it's it's like it is like the blueprint on how to do a sequel correctly and it has, I think, the most iconic moment. Oh, in absolutely! Any Star Wars movie with <laughs> yes. the "I'm your father," which is the which is the quote. That's what he says. He does. Yeah, that say is the quote. Luke. Well, yeah, because people yeah. always quote this incorrectly, which I think is hilarious, and I think is a good um, example of oh, what are those things called? Amanda no, misquote. It's a misquote, but there's like a it's like a, a term Mandela effect. We're like we we think that it's. Um, We've like convinced ourselves that this is what it is, but we're just remembering it incorrectly. Mandolin effect, or the ma- I want to say Mandalorian effect. That's not what it is. It's something not, like that. Although that though. is related. <laughs> it's related. Um, that's all I can think of. But somebody will know what it the is. The plate again, Sam. About. Yeah, yeah, that. Stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, anyway, I um, I think there's a legitimate argument for it um, being in this race, and. Uh, because not only, I mean, it also it introduces the entire Luke um, and Leia and and um, Han situation. I love you. I know. Oh yeah. You know, which uh, in the first movie, people probably don't always remember this, but in the first movie, it's almost like both of the guys are after Leia. Absolutely. Yes. Because we don't know. <laughs> we don't know what we don't know. <laughs> Because maybe George Lucas didn't know yet. <laughs> you mean he was just writing these as he went? He didn't have it all conceived no, beforehand. No, <laughs> he had all three. He had all three prequels already planned. He did. <laughs> he did not add the four later to the opening <laughs> credits or anything. Which, by the way, if you if you find a version of Star Wars that doesn't have a New Hope written on it, then that is a. That is a, a big get. Oh, actually, this is a fun story. So, um, the National Film Registry drafted both Star Wars and The Empire Strikes Back into um, its list, okay? 
and the National Film Registry requires a copy of the movie to be sent in its original format as it was seen um, when it originally came out because it was drafting the movie that came out that year. Right. Um, So Star Wars was in the, uh, like the, either the inaugural list or the year after. And um, that was 1989 when it, when National Film Registry started Um, a movie has to be 10 years old to make it onto the list. And, um, uh, so it made into the inaugural one and they sent, you know, Star Wars copy of film print of the movie. And, um, then by the time Empire got on the list, which was quite a few years later, um, George Lucas kept trying to send the 1997 redo, the, the version with all the changes, uh, yeah, and of the Academy. He did. I mean, not the Academy. The National Film Registry kept sending it back, like, "Nope, this isn't the, this isn't the version of the movie that we asked for." Um, and so he kept sending it back. The, the, this like process went b- back and forth a few times, and so there is no, it's on the list, but there is no copy of The Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> what in the in the National Film Registry? <laughs> Although I believe by the time Empire was released, uh, it already had episode five in the credits. Like that decision was made right, right, right. by the time Empire was released. But the original Star Wars just has Star Wars. It does yep. not have, um, and it's very, very, very hard to find a version of yeah. the movie that does not have, because they had refreshed it by the early 80s to have A New Hope written on the titles makes sense oh that's an interesting little little factoid yeah there you go okay so we would put that into our best picture race another snub of mine this year which i think looking back now this movie is just thought of very differently the shining the shining did not creep into any nominations this year but i would have loved to have seen it in the cinematography race and also the sound race, specifically because of the sounds, like, of when, you know, little Danny is riding on his, uh, like, uh, little bike, you know, and going from the the rug to the hardwood to the rug. That sound is just so perfect, you know. And that's just one example of how the sound really creates the atmosphere in The Shining. But I think those two categories would have been an easy uh, inclusion for the movie. Um, Acting-wise, I'm not really sure. You know, Jack Nicholson's fine. Here's Johnny! And Shelley Duvall is fine. But you know what I mean? Like, they're very, like, out-there performances that work for the film, but I don't know if they're Oscar caliber. Um, But yeah, I would have loved to see The Shining. You know, it's thought of as a masterpiece now and one of Kubrick's best, and it got snubbed. Yeah, yeah, and I think uh, the direction and the editing... Are the key in that movie. It's a longer film, it is, and yeah. it's tough to pull off a longer movie. But the the rising line of tension in The Shining is so expert. Yes, you know, um, it's it's a feat of direction. Honestly, oh my gosh, yes, <laughs> absolutely. Although he was so awful to Shelley Duvall on set, I know. I don't know if I I don't know if I want to honor him for I know. this movie just on that alone. Oh my god, I know. I think of that too. That's why I kind of went away from those categories. I was like, let's just do the the, the nice ones. <laughs> it looks pretty. Yeah. Cinematography. <laughs> but I, when it came out, it did. It was not. I mean, it it was it, it grew in reputation over the yeah. years. I think through television airings and and it kind of became a cult thing and then yeah. became more of a widespread thing. And there's so much speculation on what the ending means and yes. um, which it is just clear. Oh my God. Recently, my dad sent me the photograph that um, is hanging on the wall at the end of the movie, you know? Uh-huh, yes. And he sent me the photograph and he, and he said, he sent me the text, he's never seen The Shining. <laughs> and he um, he said, uh, "Doesn't that guy look like Jack Nicholson in this photo?" <laughs> and I said, "Dad, it is Jack Nicholson." Yes, Dad, that's the point. <laughs> He's trapped. Help him out. <laughs> I, mean, I love that. If that's love the that. way you want to interpret it, right? Exactly. Um, exactly. exactly. <laughs> oh my gosh! And I just watched the uh, episodes episode of Friends last night where, um, <laughs> yes, 
where uh, Rachel reads The Shining and Joey reads Little Women, if you remember. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was thinking during the episode, I haven't read the book, but I know things they added for the movie. And they reference things in the episode of Friends that only happen in the movie, do not happen in the book. Go figure. Which is the type of fact checking that probably didn't exist before the internet was widespread. In oh, 100% no. 100% no. They yeah. probably just assumed. <laughs> they talk about like the twins in the hallway. Oh my gosh! And, but then they, but then they talk about the real ending of the book, as opposed to it's very confusing. Um, <laughs> of course, it's Joey, and Joey could be mixing them up because you know. Anyway, that's true. Um, uh, but we'll get to Little Women. Yeah, <laughs> we will. Twice. <laughs> yes, we will. Oh, we're coming up in the nineties. My only other snub that I have here is in our Best Picture winning film. I would have loved to have seen Donald Sutherland creep into either race i mean i think we're going to get into some category fraud here in a little bit with timothy hutton winning supporting actor he is definitely the lead of the movie so i mean if we're going to move people around bring timothy hutton into lead actor donald sutherland come into supporting actor um but i think donald sutherland is just so good in ordinary people it's my favorite performance of his i would have loved to have seen him at least nominated i mean in my head he's a win he's a he's a he's a winner but, but, I would have at least loved to have seen him get the nomination. He's just wonderful. Um, I can't wait to talk more about Ordinary People. Yes. That's yeah, we'll get more into that. him in a little bit. But yeah, I just wanted people to know he deserves a nomination. <laughs> yeah, it's really shocking to me. Um, and like, uh, I'm glad Judd Hirsch is nominated. Like, I Oh, me too. Great. Oh yeah, he definitely deserves yeah. it, totally. But I think the entire cast needed to be nominated. Uh, yeah, like, there's a Supporting Actress nomination missing here, yes, too. Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, what's her name? Uh, uh, Elizabeth McGovern? McGovern, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, she's the one who plays... Wait, there's... Um, who plays Well, the, she's the girlfriend. Elizabeth McGovern is his girlfriend. She's great. She's Are you great, thinking but, the friend? Oh, I'm thinking of Diane Manhoff. Let's have the best year of our whole lives, okay? We can, you know. This could be the best year ever. Um, the friend he talks Dinah, to, and she, Dinah yeah, Manhoff, yeah, yeah, who is also one of the pink ladies in yes, Greece. her, yes, yes, yes. Um, and she also was on this sitcom called Soap. <laughs> anyway, that's one of the best <laughs> shows I've ever seen in my life. Um, but uh, and a show called Empty Nest, if anyone, which is a spinoff of the Golden Girls. Anyway, um, <laughs> look, I know a lot about this woman for some reason. Um, both of them are really good. Yeah, that's all I have. The entire cast. It's, that's yeah, literally false. all of the major parts, and <laughs> Give except for one, which we're gonna talk about. We will get to um, it. Yes. Uh, yeah, I um, yeah. There's I I the this is one of the best acted films of all time. So yeah, absolutely, hands down. This is what happens when you have a, a good actor directing a bunch of actors. I guess. Yes, I it just works. But I would like to highlight another film. Okay. Snubs. Okay. Um, a movie that I think is perhaps the greatest comedy of all time. Oh. It's called Airplane. Ah, yes. Here we go. Okay. Yep. <laughs> Airplane is a genius of a film. And if you're ever having a bad day, I recommend just typing in, uh, you know, people watch Airplane for first time on... <laughs> YouTube because there's a bunch of reaction videos of people watching Airplane for the first time. Oh my and god! And it's really fun to watch people laugh at these insanely, often stupid but amazing jokes that are that fill up this movie. And I mean, like, how often is this movie um, referenced without people realizing the references? You oh know, yeah. The, the line "Don't call me Shirley" comes from this, and I love the bit about. Oh, he's in the cockpit. What's that? What's that? Well, it's this place at the front of the plane where the pilot sits, but that's not important right now. Um, <laughs> uh, and, like, the this the part where the woman's, like, going a little crazy, and there's a line of people waiting to slap her. Slapping? Yes. And, <laughs> it's so good. And um, and then I the absurdist performances from Leslie Nielsen, which this is Leslie Nielsen's... Before this, he was kind of a dramatic actor. It was yeah. this movie that changed him into being the Leslie Nielsen that does the Naked Gun movies and whatnot. 
um, and uh, you know the guy that we know and love. Um, and then uh, Peter Graves as the super creepy uh, head pilot. And a, and a lot of people would think the whole running gag with him is really inappropriate. It is really inappropriate. <laughs> yeah. Um, but for some reason, the inappropriate stuff, I think, slides by in this movie because there are, like, this movie takes no prisoners. Like, there, nothing is off limits. Everything yeah. can go to the walls. It sets this standard that has repeated uh, by the same group and with movies like uh, Top Secret later on, and then um, and then copied in all of those parody movies, uh, like the the scary movie, yep, uh, movies of the two thousands, um, and all of that came from this. And you know, for there may be jokes that do not date well. There may be jokes that. Um, that don't land, but for every joke there is, there is another joke one second later. Just like absurd stuff, like um, when the when they're driving in the car and the rear projection is horses yeah. <laughs> galloping yeah. in the background, or the woman's having an affair with a horse, the yes. wife is. <laughs> At one point, or the guy who's like, "Well, I guess I picked the wrong time to start sniffing glue," like you know, <laughs> yeah. all of that stuff is just so absurd and insane. I would have loved to have seen um, an original screenplay. Nomination. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah, um, you know, just just some type of acknowledgement. Uh, the score is also pretty great because it sends up scores. And that isn't easy. And, you know, or some type of technical, excuse me, some type of technical nomination. Um, I do have one more snub. I'm sorry. Yeah. It's, no, also another, it's also another great comedy that should have gotten an original screenplay nomination. Mm-hmm. Uh, nine to five. Okay. I'm glad you just said nine to five because that's actually my final snub. And it's kind of the movie I want to spotlight <laughs> for this episode as well. Well, then I'm just, I'm just going to hand it off to you and I'll Ugh. add on. Beautiful. Yeah, my, yeah, 9 to 5 deserved way more nominations here. Um, If people haven't seen 9 to 5, you just need to. This movie's an absolute delight. It's about three working women who all share a similar fantasy to kill their boss, and they want to take over the company because they don't think it's being run and managed very well. Uh, But then one of the fantasies seems to come true, and then their reality and their fantasy start to kind of blend, and, um, you know, hilarity ensues. It's a really, really great movie. I found some interesting background to this film. I don't know if you're aware of this. It is, uh, you know, produced from Jane Fonda's production company. She was very... Um, interested in doing some kind of film about working women. But to her, remember, it was always... Yeah. Remember we talked about a couple episodes when she made her comeback in Hollywood, she wanted to make movies that were socially relevant. Exactly. So. And that's exactly where this movie came out from. But when she was conceiving this film, it was originally supposed to be a drama, which I think is super funny. But it wasn't until she started getting into it, she was like, no, this needs to be a comedy. Because she was listening to... She would, she would like sit in on these working women's groups they would have like meetups uh and there was a group called nine to five four working women and she sat in on one and kind of heard their stories and from those stories she kind of conceived this screenplay idea and then it was just called nine to five after this group she sat in on um yeah i just feel like this movie is so important right for the development of women characters that we see in movies and especially for female-led movies you know i don't think you get like later 80s films like Working Girl, for example, unless this movie comes first, you know? And I really think it's important that it's labeled a comedy and it's presented as a comedy because this kind of material is funny, you know? Like, I think if we treat if we treat this as humor instead of something super serious and dramatic, we can get more people involved because the idea that women are in some way less capable of doing things that men can do is just absurd. And there's humor in that absurdity. And 9 to 5 really capitalizes on that. And I just think it's perfect. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, I I love 
any movie where <laughs> the the three main women characters spend the movie um, taking down a middle-aged white guy who gets paid way too much money. You know, that's just genius. We all want to see that happen. And speaking of their boss, Mr. Hart, this is my main snub. I think Dabney Coleman deserved a Best Supporting Actor nomination for 9 to 5. I'm not such a bad guy. You're a sexist, egotistical, lying, hypocritical bigot. So I have a few faults. Who doesn't? He is so good. He is so smarmy and just, oh my God, he's a rat. You just hate him so much. But you love to hate him. And like beyond that too, any of the three leading ladies, whether it's Lily Tomlin, um, Jane Fonda, um, or Dolly Parton, they could sneak into the actress race as well. Don't care. Nominate all of them, one of them. They're all perfectly cast. Um, yes. Yeah, I love this movie so much. I know you love it too. <laughs> yeah, I'll 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 piggyback on that. Um, first of all, you're right about Dabney Coleman. Um, <laughs> and might we say I, I think Dabney Cole, Coleman not nomination worthy maybe, but is also really funny and the little part he has next year in On Golden Pond. But, yes, um, and like the year later for Tootsie, he's such a great like no he's <laughs> supporting like a player. Great 1980s <laughs> supporting player. He's always fun. He's um, but um, uh, the fact, I mean, like Lily Tomlin is one award short in the EGOT, so anytime we can sneak her in, um, and she's probably Martin. the true leading lady in this movie. You know, if we're gonna get like technical about it, I do feel like this is kind of Lily Tomlin's movie. You know what I mean? Yes, I think Lily Tomlin. Lily Tomlin, I think has. um, You would think because Jane Fonda is the one who walks into the situation at the beginning, right? But but I feel like she's the one who has the lay of the land. She's the one who I really think drives. Well, and it's her fantasy that kind of comes true with the rat poison, you know. So it's kind of her. It's true sort of story that gets continued, right? And then, the you know, yeah. Jane Fonda and um, Dolly Parton kind of support her in trying to cover up what's happening, right? But maybe you know? the, part of the reason we don't have a nomination for any of them is because there, it was confusing as to where Yeah, to it probably them, was, you know? yeah. Um, and they probably split the difference with each other, you know? Yeah, you're probably right. Um, but... Uh, but I do love that that Jane Fonda isn't afraid to take a back seat when she produces something. You know, what absolutely. I'm like, I think that speaks so well of her that she she lets these other ladies really shine and other actors too. Yeah. Um, and even the 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 women supporting in that office are are pretty great because they're so <laughs> at a girl. Little, yeah, that that woman. <laughs> I wish I knew her name off the top of my head. She's down at Charlie's getting drunk. Me too. Um, <clears throat> Roz is that the name of the character? Yes, yes, yeah, Roz, yeah. yes, Roz. Um, but um, you know the way that Dolly Parton was cast in this movie is super fun too, because mm. um, Jane Fonda was um, riding down. Uh, she was like stuck on the four hundred five or something, and and Dolly Parton's song. Um, Two Doors Down is the song, uh, came on the radio, and she suddenly just went, Dolly. It's got to be Dolly. <laughs> oh, nice. Um, and, that's, uh, and then they contacted her, and Dolly had been looking to expand into movies anyway, and she yeah. had not acted before, and she's so great in this. Um, uh and, you know, they've been kicking around the idea of a sequel to this for many, many years. And I don't know if I would be upset about it existing. <laughs> you know, um, to be honest, I wouldn't either. I would, I would pay money. I would see it, yes. Although I watch every season of Grace and Frankie like it's a sequel to <laughs> 9 to 5. Um, although the characters they play are completely different. Than, completely. Than the, yeah. Um, but no, uh, it's an absolutely delightful film um and it's held up extremely well because of the way mm-hmm. it tackles its subject matter um and it's also just like three each uniquely amazing women um and may I, by I say amazing women i mean like in their personal lives they're all so fascinating and so important i mean like you know lily tomlin is a total trailblazer who never never denied who she was right 
even before she officially came out, she never denied who she was. Totally. Um, so she is a such an important figure in the LGBTQ community. And then you have Jane Fonda, who is the ultimate activist on every single level. And then you have Dolly Parton, who's like a quiet activist who doesn't ever draw attention to herself, but then, you know, funds the Moderna vaccine and helps to save people from COVID. Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah, these are incredible. And that's that's only the tip of the iceberg of the of the work that she does for people. Um, so, uh, cause I mean, like she has a, a children's reading, um, program yes, she does. that yeah. helps with chat, which helps with illiteracy issues. Um, she is just, uh, f- these are just fantastic people and yeah. you should continue to watch this if nothing else to support them yeah. <laughs> as humans. And they should all, I don't know, I don't know what other nominations, but at least original screenplay. And I'm sorry, fame. I know you're going to live forever. Yes, thank you. (laughs) But, but let's give Dolly Parton her Oscar. Tumble out of bed and I stumble to the kitchen. Pour myself a cup of ambition and yawn and stretch and try to come to life. Uh, Because Dolly has her Grammy. Dolly has her Grammy. Dolly has her Emmy. She could be close to an EGOT, too. She could be. And this is... And 9 to 5 is such a good song. Like, this song is so good. And Fame is a good song, too. Yada, 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 yada. But 9 to 5 is great. But, I mean, and she wrote it on her fingernails. She wrote it on her fingernails. I know, with her nails. Like, it's just like, yeah. bored between between, uh, between takes. Just Just like, oh, what am I going to do? Oh, this sounds like a typewriter. Oh, this is a song. Yeah, it's so good. It's so uh, good. Genius. They let you dream just to watch them shatter. You're just a step on the boss man's ladder, but you got dreams. Come on. They'll never take away. Yeah, I love that song Yeah, okay, so sorry. Much. You had to finish my... I did. Yes, I got you. I got you. I was like, how, how long until we get flagged for copyright? <laughs> okay, um, so we definitely think 9 to 5 should also be in the best picture race. Amazing. Let's move right that's along. That's the song you're playing at the end of the episode, by the way. <laughs> it's, that's going to be our song. Our outro song. <laughs> definitely. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, then let's get into our main event. Let's chit-chat about ordinary people. So real quick, for those who have not seen this movie, this Which is about a... Immediately. You should just You just have to. You just have to, guys. It is about a family dealing with the tragic death of the oldest son from a boating accident and also their youngest son's subsequent suicide attempt. Um, But boy, that's just kind of scratching the surface. That's kind of the events that happen right before the movie starts. And then you slowly uncover those events and how it's affected this family and how that's kind of affecting how they deal with other relationships. It's, it is like the great kitchen sink drama. Would you agree with that statement? (laughs) Uh yeah yeah right kitchen, but also a coming of age story term to it yet you know it's also it's a coming definitely... of age story blended those two things together which I think are you know two of my favorite sort of subgenres of the dramatic film you know so blending those two together is great and um, the weight of this movie truly rests on Timothy Hutton's shoulders he is the son who is still alive and is sort of trying to navigate his family's emotions tiptoeing around this tragic event, which was the death of the oldest son. Um, And this is also Timothy Hutton's film debut, which I think is incredible. He's stupid good in this movie. And honestly, when I watch this film... Yeah, Yeah, go ahead. Can I just quickly say, Timothy Hutton has continued to be a great actor, and if you guys did not see um, The the Haunting of Hill House Mm. uh, miniseries on Netflix, he plays the dad on that, and he is so, so good. Anyway, He is so, so good. He's yeah. super good. When I watched this movie for the first time and I saw Timothy Hutton's performance, it was one of the main reasons why I wanted to pursue acting after mm-hmm. high school to begin with. It's, it is just so realistic and it's so raw and emotional and it just captures that anxiety that kids feel, you know, that teenagers feel when there's so much 
hidden. There's they're they're holding on to so much. They don't know how to release it. You know, they don't know how to get these secrets out, and they think they can't talk about their emotions because their family won't talk about it. You know, he just he really embodies that sort of like ticking time bomb that a lot of kids. Um, go through in their adolescent years as they are coming of age. So I think he's brilliant, and he deserves this Oscar, whether it's supporting actor or leading actor, I don't care. He deserves an Oscar for this performance. Timothy Hutton is uh, just so, so good. I, I love his eyes in this movie. Yes. I know that's like, like small detail. Well, no, it's perfect he... because you watch them go from like this frantic, sort of like they're always sort of shifting around, you know, because he's so nervous all the time, and then he starts to relax. Right as the yes. movie goes on, and you see that in his eyes, it's genius. Yeah, and this is a one of the better movies in terms of how it deals with. I mentioned Judd Hirsch earlier, um, who plays his um, psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. Is that the right term? Yeah, therapist, psychiatrist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the, the doctor who he's talking to, and um, you know their conversations make up a good bulk of this movie, and that the back and forth between them and how he goes through therapy is i think one of the better depictions of therapy on film yes and it's uh, he I, I, watching him come of age watching him come into his own is just a, a beautiful beautiful it's beautiful thing. and i think you're hitting on something that's very important is you know it's only in the last maybe decade and a half that I think therapists and psychiatrists have become more mainstream and we've gotten rid of that stigma stigma attached to them. Like if someone goes and sees a therapist, people kind of label them as, I don't know, like, um, uh, like lesser than, oh, right? You're crazy. Like you have, oh, you're crazy. You're, you have problems. Yeah. I need to, I need to be careful around you. Right. And I think yeah, but this movie, in 1980, yeah, in 1980, that's what it was. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and you see that in how the mom reacts to him going to see this therapist. You know, but what's great about this is you see his relationship with his therapist develop, and you understand how therapy starts to work. And this mm-hmm. movie shows you that therapy will only work if the participant is willing to talk about their issues. You know, a therapist can't just magically change everything. It is a two-way street, and I think that's part of the belief is, like, people think if you go to see a therapist, like, they're going to fix you. They're going to do everything you need, but no, you have to meet them with as much as they're giving you, you know? And you see that here because at first, Timothy Hutton is very reluctant to go to therapy, probably because his mom judges it, so he judges it, you know? And then as he actually starts to talk about what's bothering him it starts to work because he's actually participating. And that's what I think this movie shows really, really well is you still have to try at therapy, you know? If Timothy Hutton Mm -hmm. had just remained closed off, it wouldn't have worked, Mm -hmm. you know? And thankfully, he does kind of get rid of that. Yeah. um, And I I use that to kind of bridge into the exemplary performance that is Mary Tyler Moore Mm-hmm. as the mother um because the most complicated character i think in the movie is beth uh played by mary Taylor moore the yeah. the mother um she um she's a woman who is who d- refuses to go to therapy this is a very important part of the equation yes. Um, showing the contrast of somebody who does not and someone who does. But she lost her favorite child. And it's very obvious that it was her favorite child. Mm -hmm. Um, And she just never really connected to her other son on the level that she did her older son. And um, because of that... uh, she um what's what's the term i'm looking for here she um she has this distance and this yes. coldness towards um towards timothy hutton towards conrad yeah they're like strangers um, that you know they clearly don't even really know each other you know mm-hmm. it it very much feels like she just never even gave him hugs or anything yeah. ever even when he was little and um, 
losing the sun only revealed this um losing the other sun only revealed this kind of um tension within the family because the other sun acted as a cover if that makes any sense. Well, it made it true. You know, I'm sure, like, while the, the both sons were still alive, I'm sure that was something that everyone felt. But when the older son passed away, now it's so obvious that, like, oh, you never really cared about me. And yeah. you're getting that, you know, coldness because they both have something they need to say to one another, you know, but they're not going to. No. So and... they avoid it, and they avoid each other because of that. And I think that... I, I think it's I think what Mary Tyler Moore understands as an actress and part of the reason why this comes off so well is that I think it goes beyond having a quote unquote favorite. I mm-hmm. think it's also, you know, a fear of you know, she she won because the other son was there when the other son died, she blames him. Yes. I think that she is also afraid of getting close to another son and losing him. Right, because the, because this son has committed, tried to commit suicide on a couple of occasions, mm-hmm. um, on one occasion, not a couple of occasions, um, uh, and sh- she had to deal with the fallout of that slitting yep. his wrist. Um, right, slitting his wrist. I'm yes, not misremembering he, yep. this. Okay, yes, with Sorry. a razor. Yeah, you've probably watched it more recently than me, but I've seen it a few <laughs> times. Um, but. Uh, but because of that, she has just decided the world is going to hurt her. Yeah. And so she can't connect to the world in any real way. Mm-hmm. And the beautiful moment in her performance, and the thing that I return to, is when they are in Texas on a little trip, mm-hmm. and they're on the golf course, and she blows up. At the other couple they're with. Yep. Um, and says this beautiful line that I've returned to on many occasions. I think it's a great quote. Ward, you tell me the definition of happy, huh? But first you better make sure that your kids are good and safe. That no one's fallen off a horse or been hit by a car or drowned in that swimming pool you're so proud of. Oh. And then you come to me and tell me how to be happy. So I think what you're getting into, too, with the mom, I think is a really good kind of jumping off point for the movie's title, which I think is a perfect title for the film. Ordinary People is just talking about how the mom wants her family to be ordinary, right? She wants to live in this place where everything is perfect. Nothing is out of place. Her kids are all, you know, looking on the outside. Everything looks fine. But when you start to get inside what these people have experienced and gone through, there's nothing normal about anybody, right? Nobody is actually normal and perfect. And the more you try to hold on to that, the the more like obvious it becomes that something is clearly wrong. And that's just something that Mary Tyler Moore can never face. She cannot face uh, the loss of her son and how she blames the other child. You know, she just can't deal with these emotions because it's too messy and she can't handle mess, as Donald Sutherland says in the film. And my favorite scene of the movie is when Donald Sutherland finally admits to her that he doesn't love her anymore. It would have been all right if there hadn't been any mess. But you can't handle mess. And that is just so heartbreaking because he finally goes and sees the therapist and he has a session with him and is finally able to understand his own emotions because what I think Donald Sutherland does so beautifully in this movie is he kind of gets lost as the father trying to hold his wife and his remaining son together, right? He's trying to be that bridge for them to keep the family together and he realizes finally in the end that that's not possible if his wife isn't willing to put in the work herself, you know? So the only person he can save is his son because he's the only one willing to get better, you know? And I just think that's so tragic and he does it so well. I just love that scene. You know, he recorded that scene. They wrapped filming and Donald Sutherland didn't feel like he gave as good a performance as he could have. So he actually contacted Robert Redford and said, please, can we film that scene again? And Redford agreed to. And what you see in the film is their uh, second go at that uh, scene. And I think 
well worth it to me. It's yeah, it's genius piece of filmmaking right there and acting. It's so so good. So so. I'm good. assuming they must have submitted Donald Sutherland for for lead actor consideration. I think they did too because yeah. they were probably going off of seniority and ages. I guess. Yes. Yeah. Um, I I think that there's an argument. I think that part of the thing that maybe hurt Mary Tyler Moore and her quest for a Best Actress Oscar after getting buckets loads of Emmys for Dick Van Dyke and Mary Tyler Moore show. Um, I I think that she um, could potentially be considered supporting, even though she is the lead female of the movie. Um, You know, because, I, I mean, her part is probably comparable in size to, like, Elizabeth McGovern in the film. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and certainly is not as heavy as Timothy Hutton or Donald, Donald Sutherland's are in the movie. Right. So that's probably what hurts her. Um, but I, I know a lot of people think she should have won for this. And right. I mean, everybody should have won for this. It's absolutely <laughs> incredible performances all around. So it's, all around. it's interesting to discuss category here. Because her part is definitely a lot bigger. I mean, her part is definitely a lot smaller than Timothy Hutton's, who is the lead of the film. And should definitely be a leading actor. Yes. Um, Although that does create quite a competition, because he's up against, like, the defining Robert De Niro performance. (laughs) Um, uh, So he definitely had a much better chance to win. But then also, if you nominate Donald Sutherland, where do you put Donald Sutherland? Because you put Timothy Hodden in supporting, with Judd Hirsch, who is actually supporting. Right. And <laughs> yeah, so Judd Hirsch very had confusing. no chance. <laughs> and if you consider Timothy Hutton supporting, why is Mary Tyler Moore in lead? Like, yes. it's like... It's a I, little I messy. It just, it's, it's a very... And we know that Beth Jarrett does not like mess, so... You can't handle mess. Exactly. Um, but uh, it, it is confusing. I'm very glad that Timothy Hutton won. Um, I would have liked to have seen a Mary Tyler Moore win, but also having seen Cole Miner's Daughter, I understand why Sissy Spacek won, because you, you, especially knowing that she does her own singing. Well, I was born the Cole Miner's Daughter. Yes. And I mean, like, it's very impressive. It is a lead performance, and Sissy Spacek is phenomenal in Coal Miner's Daughter. I think that's a fair statement, right? Yes, I would agree. Yes, and I mean, Coal Miner's Daughter—it's not nearly nearly as good a movie as Ordinary People, but it's a good, it's a it's a good little biopic. It's not, it doesn't reinvent the wheel, but it's a good. But it's it, it's in the walk the line level. Of biopic with good acting carrying it through. You yes. Know? Now you brought um, up an interesting point, though. If we do bring Timothy Hutton to leading actor and he's competing against Robert De Niro in Raging Bull, I think mm-hmm. this kind of comes down to the two movies that were definitely vying for Best Picture, which is Raging Bull and Ordinary People. Now, there is a huge group of people who think that Raging Bull deserved Best Picture. Well, we're clearly is, not in that group of people. We are not in that group here, no. <laughs> why, 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 and there's also been plenty of people who have gone on to say that Raging Bull is the greatest movie of the 80s. Um, so I know we're in the camp of thought where ordinary people deserve to win, but I, I want to hear from you. Why, why do you prefer ordinary people over Raging Bull? Why is that your pick for best picture? I think it's a preference choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I can't deny that uh, Scorsese does incredible things with Raging Bull. Um, it is uh, particularly photographically an, an astounding film. Yeah. Um, I I think that um, I think that each, the fact that each sequence is um shot uh to the time period of when it was made if that makes sense shot in a style that is similar to the time period in which the fight is taking place right that is a wonderful idea 
I think it's kind of ridiculous that Raging Bull didn't win Best Cinematography. Yeah, I agree. Um, because the cinematography in the in the movie is absolutely incredible. Um, the acting is great. The direction is great. Everything about Raging Bull is great. It gets lots of praise, and it deserves lots of praise. I think that Ordinary People gets sidelined just because of the praise that exist around raging bull and that people automatically discount ordinary people as a movie because of the conversation around raging bull and they are two movies that are very very different um that can both be great films without impeding on one another and just because of an oscar ceremony and both of them are probably the best version of what they are. So ultimately, the voters in this year, you know, maybe made the decision that we agree with and that others do not. But ultimately, the voters in this year went with the movie that was substantially more popular at the time. Because Ordinary People made bucket loads of money at the mm-hmm. box office, and Raging Bull did not. And that's... True. And so if you look at things from that historical perspective, it makes so much sense that Ordinary People won Best Picture because it made quite a bit of money. Um, in fact, uh, it made $90 million Yeah, and that's amazing for 1980. Like, good Lord. And Raging Bull made, you know, still not bad, $23.4 million, yeah. uh, in 1980, although it had an $18 million budget, so it probably took a while to break even. Yeah. Um, but uh, but it makes sense. It was the more popular movie, and the popular movie won Best Picture. And beyond yeah. that, um, you know, people look at it and like, man, I can't believe Martin Scorsese went, took so long to win a Best Director Oscar. And you know what? That is upsetting. But keep in mind, in 1976, he wasn't even nominated for Taxi Driver. Exactly. And, it took a while. And Taxi Driver's brilliant, and he should have been nominated for Taxi Driver. And um, so the Academy did not have that overdue feeling. Mm-hmm. At this point, he um, hadn't even been making movies for 10 years, so overdue was not even in the... or had only been making movies for about 10 years. Yep. Overdue wasn't in the conversation yet for him. Yep. And Robert Redford, yes, this is his directorial debut, but Robert Redford had never won an Oscar before, had been making movies and been involved in the business for nearly two decades. And he was the top movie star of probably the 1970s. Yeah. Um, And the fact that he then pulled off um, and made several of the most important movies of the 1970s. Um, And then he pulled off a directorial debut that is as good as anything else was as as great as anything else great that was out there yeah and did something that so many movies uh, had never done before at this point including as we talked about earlier talking about psychiatry in a way that feels real yes and talking about issues that nobody talks about that feels real and Mm -hmm. being an indictment of ordinary society in a way that feels real yeah um and so I completely understand why this happened and I agree with it because of my personal preference, but mm-hmm. I think people who automatically this count this need to go back and watch ordinary people. Yes. And then make their decision because this is truly a great film. It really is. And I think something that's interesting too is you know when we did our rankings of the first 50 best picture movies we made a comment where a lot of our top tens were also included in some of the greatest screenplays of all time. Like, we just happen to like movies that have amazing screenplays. Um, And Raging Bull does not have a screenplay nomination. And I think that's kind of important. I do think that Raging Bull is a performance film, particularly that of Robert De Niro. It is incredible the transformation he goes under um, although i do like kathy moriarty i like, Kathy moriarty I, is great. I like joe pesci is great yeah like and all joe the nominations pesci, yeah. stand out but i mean 
you know, you walk away from this movie and you remember Robert De Niro. You know, he is transformative in this performance. But it really is the subject matter and the screenplay that I think don't really shine as much here. You know, this is... This is a movie uh, not celebrating or glorifying violence, but definitely all about violence and how it destroys people and relationships. And I just don't find that a movie I want to return to, you know? Whereas Ordinary People really deals with um, these issues we've talked about in such a revelatory way, right? You leave Ordinary People feeling hopeful. You leave raging bull just feeling absolutely depressed and defeated <laughs> you know you know um yeah um a couple of notes here one speaking on screenplay uh ordinary people is based on a book that i have read actually mm-hmm. called ordinary people a 1976 novel that is very very good and follows and the movie follows it very very closely so a lot of that dialogue that's in the film is very much already rooted in a piece of literary work right um Novel by Judith Guest, 1976, yep. if anybody wants to seek that out. it fall, It's not very long. It's only um, 245 pages, so it's not uh, difficult to get through. And it is a, a, a great, great book if you also want to um, <laughs> also want to tackle that one. But um, the, the thing that I think makes Raging Bull really work, honestly... Um, outside of the cinematography and Robert De Niro's performance, um, I think uh, Thelma Schoonmaker's um, editing, which did yeah. win Best Film Editing, is absolutely incredible. And I think she is also just an incredible person in general. In general, um, she uh, and I. My favorite note about her is that she was married to uh, for the last few years of his life, uh, Michael Powell. Um, who Michael Powell was a pal and Pressburger who gave us um, the red shoes and right. black narcissists and all those great um, a matter of life and death and all those great uh, 1940s um, technicolor epics. And so um, uh, she, uh, she uh, is one of the great film editors of all time and has worked very closely with, um, with uh, Martin Scorsese all these years editing, yes. I think virtu- mostly most of his movies. Um, yep. Not, I don't think all of them, but almost all of them. Definitely, and, uh, uh, yeah, she also is the editor for his next movie. So, Killers oh. of the Flower Moon with Leonardo DiCaprio, um, <laughs> which has a two hundred million dollar budget. Good gracious. And uh, and uh, is being distributed by Paramount and Apple. So, oh, wow. Apple's well, that'll be interesting. Scorsese. Yes. Um, and she's also, I guess, uh, we can credit her with making Robert De Niro look younger in The Irishman. There, yes, very true. <laughs> we definitely needed that. <laughs> All right, so we are both in the same school of thought. We definitely think Ordinary People is our best picture winner of this year. No contest, no question. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I agree. Beautiful. Uh, Beautiful. Ordinary People. Okay, then let's get into what we're going to talk about next week. 1981, Best Picture Winner, Chariots of Fire. And that's all I know about this movie, that song. I have never seen this Um, one. This will be new and fresh for me. What about you? It will be new and fresh for me as well. I'm going to tell you, um, it has some stiff competition for me in 1981. Oh, yes. Right off the bat. Because two of my favorite films are nominated for Best Picture this year. Mm -hmm. Um, One of them also has a great music score. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, uh, uh, which I can't for the life of me hum off the top of my head right now. Um, Because I'm getting it confused with other John Williams scores. Uh, No, 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 that's Star Wars. Hold on. There it is. Yeah. There it is. Yeah. 
Uh, and then also, I think one of the another great family drama that is more hopeful than ordinary people, but also is a well acted, another great little movie from Jane Fonda's production company. Uh, that has the basically swan song of two screen legends, mm-hmm. um, and another great supporting performance from Dabney Coleman uh, comes Absolutely. out. Comes out next year, and I love both of those movies. So it's... Chariots of Fire really has to run. You know oh. that about it. Run a little faster <laughs> to beat. Plus, uh, we also get the rise next year of um, another another sixties seventies actor turned director. That is true. It's not his first. Yes. It's not his directorial debut. No, but it is his for it's it, it's probably what most people would consider his greatest. So. Right, that's true. We'll be talking about all of that next week. Join us then as we break down 1981.